and welcome to the VSA Capital Tech and Transitional Energy Podcast on Thursday, February the 17th. Bill, how are you? Up on very good form, Andrew. Yep, I'm fine. Good, and I'm glad you're in good form. Um, I'm going to be heading off to uh, Cornwall later today for a long weekend, right into the eye of this red alert that's just come out <laughs> from Storm Eunice. Um, I could be blown miles away. <laughs> but of course, actually, I guess the windmills and everything, or the wind power, will have to stop. It'll be too strong for the wind power, won't it? Yes, they do. Um, when it does get too strong, they uh, yeah, they switch them off. They curtail to uh, to avoid damage to the turbines. I think they will have to. Um, and again, you know, actually, whilst we're on wind and power, I don't know if you saw the other day. Uh, there was a sort of annual bids, aren't there, for the uh, capacity prices for all these people who put you know gas turbine engines in a field and virtually hardly ever switch them on but just occasionally switch them on when there's a surge in requirement and then i see that they had uh, record capacity prices and by record i mean absolutely huge i mean do we have a we don't just have an energy crisis in this country we have an energy supply crisis as well don't we i we we do and the prices that uh, that went through the the power capacity auction I reflected that it was saying I, I was just reading the uh, I think it was on Reuters, but it was saying that the uh, the last auction for for 2020 and 21 uh, period supply was at a pound per kilowatt per year, and these have done at 75 pounds. <laughs> it's just incredible. 75. Isn't it? Wow. Said that they um, uh, they procured uh, those. 560 megawatts was procured from demand side response providers, which is what you're talking about. This is kind of, you know, when when the frequency falls on the grid, they suddenly have to switch on. Um, and it said that uh, of that 560 megawatts, 411 was from coal, uh, and also there was 385 from battery storage. So uh, yeah, quite interesting. Well, <laughs> sort of says it all about the mix, really. Uh, I would think there was some gas in there as well, but my word, what a difference in price! Oof. It's extraordinary, and actually, this is where you know these um, some of these battery storage projects can actually make a could be making a lot of a lot more money actually just by playing the arbitrage. A lot of them do play the arbitrage. The Pivot Power project down at Oxford does, um, but you know you could put almost any form of battery energy storage and make in a field at the moment in the UK connected to the national grid and make an awful lot of money. Um, <laughs> Because it has gone a little bit crazy. I mean, whilst we're um, talking a little bit about that, it's quite. I've just given you a weather warning for the southwest of England. I'm going to give a little bit of a warning on some of these battery energy uh, storage funds like Gresham and Gore, um, because um, I'm sure most people have noticed that the the lithium carbonate prices is going through the roof at the moment. But when I say it's going through the roof, it really is going through the roof. Um, when we started looking at lithium back in 2013, it was about $4,000 a ton. It's now $64,000 a ton. And that is just, there isn't enough lithium out there. Now, one of the problems with these lithium battery storage funds and lithium batteries is that basically every five to seven years, you have to replace the battery because they degrade. Um, by the way, most of these energy funds are not allowed for a decommissioning of those batteries either, which because you can't just chuck them out. You have to, re they're expensive to get rid of. But, they'll suddenly find that the price of their batteries for a place have gone through the roof uh, and they really are not going to be viable. And there's going to be, I think, out of some of these energy storage funds, some rather nasty write-downs, which is going to somewhat destroy the model. So I'd just 
you know, a bit of a warning. I, I don't look at them close enough to say exactly when and how much, um, but I would be pretty cautious if I was holding one of those funds at the moment, just having a good piece of analysis. Uh, and I think the other point, I think I mentioned this, maybe I mentioned in the podcast, I, I can't remember, but, you know, one of the reasons we have this massive issue with lithium and why the price is going through the roof is that so much lithium has been used actually for the wrong purpose. It's been put into long duration energy storage. It should just be used for EVs where it's perfect. There's plenty of other products, as we know, that can go do long duration energy storage. And I'm, I'm not just talking vanadium. Everybody knows that I love vanadium. But there are plenty of other ways of doing long duration energy storage. I mean, hydro is the most common, but obviously you need mountains and things. But, you know, there's compressed air, there's hydrogen, there's vanadium, there's zinc bromide, you name it. Um, lithium actually is the wrong product, and yet that's what everybody's using. I mean, it's it's crazy. Um, but there you go. Um, now, just uh, whilst on that same topic, Phil, yep. um, we announced yesterday actually a very interesting situation with our, our client, Infinity Energy Systems, where they're listed on AIM. We actually dual listed on the Acrisic Stock Exchange. We've talked a lot about the Acrisic Stock Exchange because it's a sort of modern exchange. But we dual listed it on the Acris Stock Exchange so that they could then list their warrants effectively for free alongside them because the Acris Exchange allows you. It says if you're an issuer, you can have as many instruments as you want listed under the same basically prospectus. So for very little capital, we were able to list them on Acris, list the warrants, which the warrant holders are delighted about. And actually, I think we could well see quite a flood of AIM companies doing exactly the same thing, dual listing on Acris so that they can list warrants if they either already have them or if they don't have them. Uh, actually so that they can issue them when they're next to a fundraise. So watch this space, but I think there could be quite a lot of interest. We've certainly had a lot of interesting calls from people who have read that announcement and said, wow, that's pretty innovative. Well, that's for you, say, Andrew. <laughs> yeah, very good. Uh, and also just, again, on sort of batteries and that sort of thing, yeah. I noticed that this week that uh, British Vault raised another 200 million, didn't they? Yes, I saw that. Yeah, they did. Mm-hmm. And Glencore contributed, I think it was £40 million. Um, so the whole sort of, um, actually the UK is starting to get itself going uh, in terms of um, building a gigafactory. Um, we've also had some rare earth companies come to our office this week. And interesting enough, there is a lot of talk about, as well as Pensana having a process plant, which they're looking to do up in the north um, east. Uh, possibly another process plant being designed somewhere. And we've also got Glencore talking about, you know, lithium battery recycling plants. Slowly but surely, it would appear that the UK is actually starting to really get going in this whole um, part of the transitional energy uh, chain, which is actually the, the building of the batteries and the process plants, etc., which are very expensive. Uh, did you see also, and this is from the... Uh, the engineer, which of course I always read, publication actually, the engineer at heart, uh, that Eurocell has, uh, has put the UK on the shortlist for its first European gigafactory, um, a £600 million investment. So we're on the side, I think, uh, Spain and Netherlands on their shortlist. So clearly we're being seen as a destination, increasingly as a destination of choice for these things. I mean, just so fantastic if we can become that. Um, love to see a bit more support from the government, but there you go. I also, though, did see from the government, they, I think it's they're putting forward 1.3 billion for helping with charging points. Yeah, they are, yes. Yep. 
And yeah. I mean, this is need at this whole charging point situation. I mean, we are starting, we've talked a lot about it on this podcast, yeah. we're starting to get, aren't we? We're, we're starting to get a lot of charging points being put in, you know, motorway service stations or, you know, uh, retail parks or, or, you know, big supermarkets. But there's still so much that is required for the whole infrastructure and the whole way people are going to charge their cars because it's not all about just you know having them at a motorway service station the one of the big questions i still think hasn't really been resolved yet is what you're going to do in terraced houses uh it's great if you've got a massive country mansion with a big drive yeah you can put in your own system but you know for us poor investment bankers i'll get into trouble for saying that when i uh, but if you live in a terraced house which let's be honest most people in london do and i live in a terraced house very nice one but it is still terraced you can't guarantee parking your car outside your own house and you certainly you're not supposed to run cables are you unless you've got sort of i don't know flashing lights and yellow jackets or whatever um across the pavement and so we, we need to resolve how we can get terraced housing charging going as well and I, I'm not sure we've quite got there yet. No, we no we haven't, Andrew. But I think you and I are both maybe a bit old enough to remember the major rollout of cable TV, um, and of course now you know subsequently the fibre optic networks. So there are the companies out there that do that, and that's the big the big telcos and know how to do it. But that's a it's a it's a it's a long you know it's a long process. But there is the there is the means. And we have a lot of lampposts out on the street. Yeah, we do. Yep. And they are starting to put charging points into them. And you can then just plug your car into the lamppost. And it shouldn't matter too much which lamppost. Um, but again, as you say, what I find is interesting is that you, you've got this sort of blend at the moment between, because there are other complications, obviously, with the, all, all of this charging. It's, it's not just the charge. Anyone can put a box to a certain yeah. extent. Um, but you've got to be, have the voltage, the transformers to control right. voltage. Yep. The amount of energy there it's, it's this whole sort of chain of things you've got to put in place which is why i find it so interesting that potentially you know charging connects in very much with what i describe as grid services and utility work because you probably end up digging the roads as well um so yeah you need to sort of factor that all in i think about how it's all going to work we're not there yet um anyway that was me ranting on a bit wasn't it <laughs> But we're keeping up to speed on it for investors, and that's the main thing. Uh, we did. And one of the companies, obviously, that we like within the space is Nexus uh, Infrastructure. They had their AGM this week, said that everything's fine. Um, so a bit of a tick in the box there. But that was it. Fine. Yeah. Uh, and what would you, anything you'd like to discuss, Phil? Well, there's, there's, actually, Andrew, there are quite a few things, and I'm not shy coming forward on these. I mean, just just quickly and reflecting on your comments about lithium and demand and battery storage, the um, the California Public Utilities Commission has approved plans to add more than 25 gigawatts of renewables and 15 gigawatts of storage uh, by 2032. I mean, it seems a long way, but it's 10 years away, and that's 49 billion. So just reflects this continued direction um of of travel in the you know in the industry so that's that that's that but uh, just a wider thing can remember we we were discussing sort of start of the year andrew about inflation about costs about you know supply recovering and and and, and how we're going to be watching that i don't know if you saw that airbus 
have come out with um, results. Very good numbers. Like, yeah, indeed, indeed, indeed. Um, and they were saying that uh, they've seen partial recovery in air travel, which of course we all know, but higher defence and um, you know helicopter earnings. So obviously Airbus is a big manufacturer of helicopters, but also defence equipment. Um, and so you know, why, is, why is that important for what UK investors bother about that? I mean, firstly, we've got a very big aerospace industry and we do have, we manufacture for uh, components, parts for Airbus. Um, but more importantly, when you're looking at companies' results and they say, you know, whether they've got exposure to, um, you know, things like automotive, medical, industrial, aerospace. So they are a leading aerospace provider and it all feeds down through. So I thought that was quite a, quite a, a positive in terms of what they were saying. Also, um, I don't know if you saw, there's been quite a few uh, big tech results out in the States, which again are an indicator of health in the economy and spend. One of those is Cisco. Um, and Cisco are one of the biggest providers of plumbing for the internet worldwide. They make routers, switches, also provide security. Um, and and very a lot of this business is very much driven by cloud and cloud computing investment. And they were saying that um, they were seeing a, a, a very positive progress, uh, but also shifting more software and subscription revenue. So this is like SaaS. When we're talking about SaaS software, this is what this is. Uh, but they warned, and they said that uh, pandemic-induced supply challenges, which have added to costs, will persist. Um, so they're seeing, they're seeing, you know, still supply issues there. But I also saw applied materials, and make, they make equipment that are used in silicon chip manufacturing uh, around the globe, and their their kit is just vital uh, to making um, semiconductors. And they had results as well. They said that the supply environment remains challenging. Um, so they're seeing no great change there, but um, they said that uh, they're already close to being sold out for the year uh, with a positive growth outlook for 2023. So um, very, very positive uh, from them. And again, they're a reflection of global chip demand and strengthen global chip demand, because if the end demand is there, the, the, the manufacturers are buying equipment from um, from applied materials, so we you know, want to watch we watch closely. And then on um, on e-commerce, Andrew, I don't know if you saw Shopify also had uh, they had results as well. Um, and Shopify are used by oh god, you know, just several hundreds of thousands of e-commerce companies around the world uh, to develop their e-commerce websites uh, to link into payments and to link into logistics. And it's one that we watch very closely because, of course, we've got a company, uh, Samarkand Group, in the sector. Um, and they said that they'd seen a, a slowing pace in first half growth, indicating that the e-commerce boom seen in the pandemic is cooling as retailers shift back to bricks and mortar stores online. Well, there's logic in that as people are coming back. But what does cooling mean in the case of Shopify? Um, it said that they expect revenue growth for 2022 to be lower than the 57% recorded in 2021. So, you know, everything everything is relative in, uh, <laughs> in the e-commerce business. So I thought that was quite interesting. I mean, it, you know, we are going back to normal, whatever the new normal is at the moment of a post-pandemic, should we say, you know, I think it'd be fair to say that the UK is is pretty much, you know, it looks like at the end of this month, all restrictions will basically be dropped off. The need for pre-flight testing with places like France has now been dropped, so you can all go skiing without having to do loads of tests. 
does feel like we're getting back to normal, although it is the new normal, should we say. There's going to be some, some big changes. And we do, of course, still have this very strong geopolitical situation, should we say, West versus East, which is a, you know, really is throwing up some problems, you know, this Ukraine situation and the China situation. Yeah. Um, it's funny, I've been talking to some people this week, maybe a bit of a red herring, but it's not really, it's very interesting, I think. Uh, and that is just, I was explaining to a lot of people how uh, tied in German growth was actually to the Chinese growth and, you know, the stable Russian position. Uh, and people were like, look at me, going, are you off your rocker, Andrew? You know, but actually what people forget is, and it was shown up um, in, uh, I can't remember, it was this week, there was a, a joint venture between VW and a Chinese group, WAN, I think it was or something. Uh -huh. um, but, you know, the Chinese automotive industry, if you go out to Shanghai, and obviously I used to go a lot, every other bloody car is German. Uh, and actually, a lot of that ch German growth over the last 30 years simply mirrored the Chinese growth because Ch Germany is so linked to China in terms of a lot of their heavy engineering. And of course, they were able to do it off the back of cheap energy prices to a certain extent coming out of Russia. Um, but it's the first bit that's, that's important. And you know, now that China is clearly closing up to the West, um, and, and the Chinese growth is probably going to slow as well. And they're obviously trying to get more domestic product rather than foreign product. Uh, although, is it is it foreign or domestic when you actually manufacture it in the country, but it's a German brand? Um, it, it, I think it will actually slow the growth of Germany. And I, I'm not sure many people have really put that connection together. Mm. Um, so just, just anybody who's, you know, you, you may or may not agree with me, do message me if you don't. Um, but be aware if you've got with some of those German, you know, engineering companies, they could see quite a sharp downturn because of the situation with China. Did you know also, Andrew, that China has been one of the biggest importers of machine tools? Um, so these are the milling and grinding tools that use, you know, for making, uh, for making engines and for shaping, you know, the structure of the actual engine itself. Um, and they're a huge importer and, of course, one of the biggest exporters of machine tools and measurement instrumentation uh, is is uh, is Germany. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's so it's, yeah. uh, the two yeah. have been very much hand in hand. A lot of yeah. this German miracle or whatever you want to call it, it's taken place over the last 30 years. It, it was simply tied in with the Chinese miracle. Yeah. Um, actually, I mean, a lot of people don't understand Germany was heavily involved with China and there are certain cities um, in in China that are, are very German orientated. Yeah, yeah, that's that's good to point that out. It's very anyway, another one. Yeah, uh, changing a little bit, IP uh -huh. Group um, announced uh, this week. Actually, a couple of interesting things that I caught my on IP Group. But, but um, First Light Fusion got funded. They, they, uh, I saw that. Yeah. That's an IP group stock, isn't it? So that's obviously going well. And the other one that I caught my eye, another eye, I think IP group put some money into that. They didn't put any money, though, into Bramble Energy, but Hydrogen One did. And Bramble Energy is an IP group stock. Bramble Energy, in my view, is one of the most exciting um, fuel cell companies in the UK. Um, you know, we tend to just talk ITM, Ceres and AFC because they're right, yeah. listed. Yeah, I've often said on this podcast, you know, fuel cells have been around for 60 years. There's, there's actually not a huge amount of IP in a lot of these fuel cells. 
Bramble Energy, I think, is a really interesting one. Has got some interesting stuff. It's obviously not public. It's part of the IP group portfolio. But do have a look at it. It's getting support from people, and I think we're going to hear more and more about that one. Yeah, so I was reading about that, saying that you use it. Well, I'd love to find out more about this now. It's saying that they're using printed circuit board um, technology at the heart of its at the heart of its fuel cells. Because I mean, PCBs is a global global industry. I mean, every bit of electronics has chips sat in the PCB. So yeah, no, that looked well, that was quite yeah, that was that was fascinating one that. And actually, whilst we're talking, you know, these uh, IT conglomerates, um, our client Frontier IP, one of the smaller ones, but also earlier stage, they sold some more Accentia shares, didn't they? Yeah, Accentia, that's right. It's listed on this NASDAQ. It's, uh, yeah, that's AI for for for, uh, for drug discovery. Now, the yeah, Accentia was spin out of Dundee University originally. Uh, I think where Frontier got it got involved with it. Um, and as you know, as an investment from the global farmers and major major funds and a very successful Nasdaq IPO, yeah, they've been able to exit a bit more of their equity in that. That was good news. Yep. So uh, that was good. Uh, that's probably all for me. I think on my on praying on my mind this week. It is half term week, so it's sort of been pretty quiet. Um, hopefully, if anybody listening's on half term, hopefully you're enjoying it. Your kids aren't driving insane. <laughs> What about you, Phil? You got anything else you want to just wrap up with? Well, we might as well look just quickly wrap up on brands because we do do tech trends and brands, Andrew. And uh, two of the biggest global brand companies have been reporting. Uh, that's Nestle. Yeah, they had good things, uh, didn't they? Wreck it and Benkheiser. Um, yeah, they were a bit boring, I thought. They, they were. <laughs> Well, yes, uh, beauty is in your eye of the beholder there. Um, but uh, they, they, they make some interesting comments about inflation, I thought, because this is something that we are watching uh, very closely for our listeners. And uh, Nestle said that um, they, uh, this was just out on uh, Reuters today, um, and they are sticking with price increases to help um, support their margins. And their CEO said that it's safe to assume input cost increases for 22 will be higher than 21. Uh, and they're trying to reflect that in their pricing and pass that on to consumers. Um, and so, you know, they're expecting to be able to uh, to hold their profit margins at around 17 17%. Uh, this year so a couple of things for investors in that is if you have uh companies uh well companies you're invested in we're in an inflationary environment is trying to understand their ability to pass on uh cost increases to their customers very sort of very important in this kind of environment um, and nestle are saying you know they've been doing that uh wreck it benkheiser meanwhile which is 100 wreck it benkheiser andrew um they have said that uh they've seen very interesting this for s ventures one of our client companies they'd seen um you know strong sales this year i mean um strong demand for health and cleaning products uh and sv's and healthy healthy foods but uh a bit of a more of a sort of structural trend there uh, and again it is raising prices uh to offset costs of raw materials and other costs in the uh, you know it's currently inflationary environment so there we go well i may say it's a little bit boring but i mean stock records is actually up 300p today which is just over five percent so clearly the market was relieved that they weren't clobbered i mean inflation is a real problem it, it's going to come to a head in, in sort of april time particularly when national insurance comes through as well and various changes in VAT. 
um, I mean, I, I was listening on, on Wake Up to Money Radio 5 this morning about the poor fish and chip shops where their vegetable oil prices have virtually doubled, their fish prices have virtually doubled, uh, they've got extra VAC coming on, they're having to pay the staff more, they're having to pay the staff extra national insurance. And he, he was basically just saying, look, you know, if we double the price of your fish and chips, though, which is what our costs are doing, we, we just think the customers will stop buying. Um, so what do we do other than close the shop? And um, I'm not sure we can solve that with technology. I mean, you know, it's a pretty basic principle, of, you know, but if that's what the costs are doing, that's what the consumer is going to have to pay, but the consumer ain't going to pay that. So it's not looking good for the old fish and chippy down the high street. Well, I like my fish and chips, and you're heading down to Cornwall, so you should be able to get some nice ones down there. I won't be going out to sea this weekend. <laughs> <laughs> well, all I can say is I hope you can get us. You need to mount a sail on the top of your car. You'll get down there double quick. Yeah, well, unfortunately, there's a lot of speed limits on the M4 and M5. Yeah. I mean, you can't do it quick. It's impossible. Anyway, people aren't listening to this podcast for my trips to Cornwall. Uh, we'll call it a day there because, as I say, it has been hard to It's been quite quiet. Uh, but hopefully that was useful. Uh, do send us any messages, anything you want us to talk to us. Like I always say, any comments, we, we love to hear them. Um, and we'll be back next week. We will. Chat then, Andrew.